On countries that don't exist anymore, we often talk about countries splitting off from other larger entities. A lot of the time, it's funny. As one of our five-star reviews rightfully says, or not funny, as a one-star reviewer also said. But Carpathian Ukraine is going to be a bit harder to be totally light-hearted about, not only because of the dark time in Europe when this all took place, but also the modern parallels in the Ukrainian bit of the world today where yet another aggressive leader is currently mid-invasion. Putin? Yes, but he does say he's doing that to actually stop the Nazis. An aggressive autocrat invades a democratic country run by a left-wing Jewish president, and he's stopping Nazis? Well, I guess Russia saw Britain and the USA invade Iraq on flimsy pretenses and thought, hmm, hold my vodka. Well, there is that. So today we're going to tread a fine line, hopefully informative, hopefully entertaining, hopefully respectful, hopefully all the right things at all the right times. Can we, at countries that don't exist anymore, do all that whilst covering the short-lived nation of Carpatho-Ukraine while getting everything right and not ruffling any feathers? Well, if you're thinking yes, listeners, then you've obviously not heard many episodes of... Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist anymore December 7th 1941. It's countries. A date which will live in infamy. It's don't exist anymore. It's one small step for man. It's countries that don't exist anymore. In September 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're thinking that's the start of the war, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, from a Western standpoint, but as far as German aggression in Europe goes, that was just the latest encroachment they made. Today we'll be talking about what happened before. You see, the short split of Carpathian Ukraine from the state of Czechoslovakia to form an independent country was a byproduct of earlier Nazi aggression. Kinda blows your mind. Sure, it suddenly blows mine. But Germany invades Poland, uh, still the start of the war. Or was it? Yeah, it was. Look, oh, God's sakes. Look, Phil, I, I'm going for an interesting, cold, open, rhetorical style here, like more successful history podcasts. I didn't want to just, you know, default to the usual thing of a man who doesn't sound much like Matt Berry asking a question to cue up a pre-scripted answer. Can I, can I do the voice? Fine. Where was Carpathian Ukraine? In a small area, mainly on the southern slopes of the Carpathian Mountains in Eastern Europe, home to the same community of people for a thousand years. We're talking about 13,352 kilometres squared of land, which is a little bit smaller than Northern Ireland. So who were the Carpatho-Ukrainians? Um, it's a nationality that doesn't really exist by that name. What I mean by that is that the place was called Subcarpathian Rus as part of Czechoslovakia and then only changed its name to Carpathian Ukraine in 1938. So, for a more permanent sense of 
who these people were and who they are, we should keep things simple and refer to them as Russins or Ruthenians. Oh, and by the way, Ruthenia is a Latinized form of Russin. These are the same group of people that made up the Kievan Rus, i.e. Vikings, that went east and set up kingdoms there. Okay, so who were the Ruthenians then? Uh, it's difficult to say. Well, it seems easier to say than Carpatho-Ukrainians. No, no, I mean that Ruthenia never just referred to the small area of poor farmland briefly known as Carpatho-Ukraine. Like, Ruthenia has also been used as a name to refer to the to Belarus and Ukraine. And then in historical sources, Ruthenians could also refer to Eastern Slavs who called themselves Rus throughout the Middle Ages. Later on, Ruthenians meant just Ukrainians living under the Habsburg monarchy and later the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, so, yes, confusing. But just bear in mind that for most of history, information has been scarce and writers were often ignorant of who people were and where they came from. We came here and they were like, hi. And we're like, hey, you're Indians, right? And they're like, no. No, this is India, right? No, it's not. It's to totally other place. You're not Indians? No. Ah, you're Indians. Under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, formed in 1867, Russian language schools were forced to shut down and Russian names were given a Hungarian makeover. I've rebadged it, you fool. Russian culture was under threat. With such a bleak future, many Russians left for the new world between 1870 and 1920. Finally, America. The land of the free where I can preserve the Ruthenian name of Basilos Letchovich. Basilos Watchovich? No way, Bob. From now on, your names are, let me see, Bob Lewis. Yeah, that's real swell. Bob Lewis? After World War One, thanks to the self-determination trend that the newly formed League of Nations were putting about, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was broken up into smaller blocks generally containing specific peoples who wanted a nation to call their own, generally. One of the exceptions to this was the national Lego brick concoction known as Czechoslovakia, a union of Czechs, Slovaks and other peoples including Ruthenians. So they split up the multinational Austro-Hungarian Empire to create a smaller Austro-Hungarian Empire? Yeah, pretty much. Unions of nations don't work. That's why we had to get out of the EU. Right, and why the SNP is right to want to get Scotland out of the UK? No, not the same thing at all. At its formation in 1921, Carpatho-Russians made up 3.5 of Czechoslovakia's 13.6 million inhabitants, which also included Czechs, Germans, Slovaks, Magyars, aka Hungarians, and a smaller number of Jews and Poles. So all Ruthenians lived in Czechoslovakia? Um, no, not that simple. So all Czechoslovakians lived in Ruthenia? Eh? While there was a sizeable community in the eastern rump of Czechoslovakia, Ruthenians could also be found in neighbouring Hungary, Poland and Soviet Russia. In 1920, the Czechoslovak constitution, sort of but not quite following League of Nations recommendations, determined that Subcarpathian Rus, as it was then known, wouldn't be given immediate autonomy, but it would come later down the line. But even amongst the Ruthenians of Czechoslovakia, there wasn't total agreement about what would be best. 
people disagreeing? I'm shocked. Some wanted union with Soviet Ukraine, others were Russophiles and wanted to make more of their links with Russia, but not necessarily Soviet Russia, and many were just very happy to be in Czechoslovakia. And in fairness, they could have had a much worse deal. The Czechoslovak government may not have granted independence, but they left the region free to have their own schooling, language and tradition. This encouraged immigration of Ruthenians living in Ukraine, determined to level up their homeland. On the other hand, the Subcarpathian Rus had nothing like the autonomy mentioned by the League of Nations in 1919, and some were rather peeved that they were unable to form their own diet or parliament. Yes, they had a Carpatho-Russian governor, but he was effectively powerless. So much so that the first governor of the province resigned as soon as he was appointed in 1921. I don't get it. Cushy government job, lots of influence, but no power to actually do anything all day. Sounds like the dream. Well, things improved in 1928 when Czechoslovakia was reorganised and Subcarpathian Rus was given a 24-member assembly. Although, again, a rather diluted arrangement since one-third of them were appointed by the Czech government. So we're a long way off independent territory just now. The governor this time was given a proper office to work at, albeit in a room in the city museum. I don't get it. A cushy government job in a comfy office next to a gift shop? I mean, it sounds like the dream. Hmm. When the Subcarpathian Rus were allowed to vote in national elections, they unfailingly cast their ballots for anti-government parties. In 1924, the Subcarpathian Communist Party received nearly 40% of the vote, which in our curious UK parliamentary system would be enough for a spanking majority. And while anti-government parties might make you think, boo Czechoslovakia, high independence, again, this wasn't the case. No one was thinking that, Ed. Shh, I'm going somewhere with this. Hmm. A lot of this anti-government vote was less rejection of Czechoslovakia per se, and more just an economic protest vote. Subcarpathian Rus had little or no industry, and 75% of the working population relied on small-scale agricultural work and forestry. By God, if they're around today, they could have all had their own self-sufficiency YouTube channels, couldn't they? Then mm -hmm. they wouldn't be complaining. No wonder those communists and their labour-saving tractor obsession seem so attractive. Hey, Ed, 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 don't you mean uh, a tractor <laughs> No. And don't ad-lib, Phil. I'm sorry. But while the population of Subcarpathian voters were slapping the central government on the wrist for not providing them with EU-style funding to improve regional conditions... Ah, oh, so you'd rather be on your knees to the Nazi EU? The actual Nazis, a.k.a. Nazi Germany, annexed Austria in 1938. This left Czechoslovakia surrounded by really pro-taking-over-stuff powers. And surprise, surprise, it wasn't long before Nazi Germany took a bite out of Czechoslovakia, annexing the border Sudetenlands, claiming that they were just there to reunite ethnic Germans with the fatherland. Oh, we're here to liberate you, German brethren. Um, but I'm Moravian. Oh, what's that you're eating for lunch? Um, it's a hamburger. Ha! Totally counts! You're totally German! But what did the West do about the annexation of the Sudetenlands? Nothing. Or very close to nothing. They had a nice conference in Munich in 1938 and agreed with Adolf Hitler that everything was basically fine. 
Now, look here, an Adolf, old chap, Chamberlain here. Now, uh, I, I think it's a bit dash unreasonable you going and invading uh, Czechoslovakia. So what say you stop doing it now? Nine! Oh, well, good. I'm glad we've come to a thoroughly great understanding. Right, I'm going to go home and tell everybody it was all fine. Thanks, bye. And while Neville Chamberlain got to go home, waving a piece of paper, claiming peace in our time, the Czechoslovak government had a different view, calling it the Munich Betrayal. I guess it's just a case of tomato, tomato, oh God, what have they done to us? Having to pick up the pieces from losing a great chunk of land, Czechoslovakia became the second Czechoslovakian Republic, granting autonomy to Slovakia and Subcarpathian Rus. Now, to keep the Nazis from gobbling up any more land, the Czechs aligned with Germany, so they banned the Communist Party and introduced anti-Semitic laws. So things weren't going great. Then, in October 1938, Hungary attacked Czechoslovakia. But in this case, Germany and Italy announced that they would play peacemaker. <coughs> Essentially, by awarding Hungary with Czechoslovakian lands. Aww including a piece of Subcarpathian Rus in something called the Vienna Award. And the award for best grab of Subcarpathian Slovakian lands goes to... Hungary! Nice peacemaking. As a result, Subcarpathian Rus got a new government which was strongly pro-Ukrainian and led by Augustin Volution, a priest, lecturer and Ukrainian nationalist. And reflecting the Ukrainian swing of things, Subcarpathian Rus rebranded itself as Carpathian Ukraine. Your Subcarpathian Rus is such a mouthful. We need something snappy, memorable and dynamic. Um, how about Ruthenia? That's even longer. I got it. Carpatho-Ukraine. Oh, you've done it again, sir. I sure have. Now give me loads of money for not doing much. And a big bag of cocaine. Recognising that they were there for the taking, the Ruthenians set up a paramilitary force called the Sitch. To cement things, Volusian prepared to have a vote to show approval for his moves. True, he was the only party on the ticket, but that's still a vote. Me. But even Volusian wasn't suggesting a split with Czechoslovakia. In fact, he claimed that the vote for his actions would show support for Czechoslovakia more broadly. So, yes to Ukraine, but not really time to split off from Czechoslovakia yet. In 1939, Hitler planned to invade Poland, but wanted to neutralise Czechoslovakia. Because despite the myth of the all-powerful Nazi Germany war machine, Czechoslovakia still had a pretty well-trained and fearsome army. It was one of the largest in Europe, 1.5 million strong, and well-equipped with modern weapons including tanks and aircraft. No joke. So, Hitler told Slovakia that its only chance of not getting stomped on was to declare independence. In this way, Hitler hoped to get Czechoslovakia to break up into more manageable, bite-sized bits. Unfortunately, Carpatho-Ukraine wasn't yet ready to defend itself. In Ruthenia, the paramilitary Sitch had 15,000 members, with only about 2,000 actually ready to fight. It's also possible that Hitler wanted to stir up Ukraine, which might include Ruthenia, so that Ukraine, which was under the Russian thumb at the time, could form its own country, albeit one whose sole purpose 
would be to feed the greater German Reich. And there were people in power in Nazi Germany that weren't altogether indifferent to the fate of Carpatho-Ukraine. One newspaper report of the time had it that 100,000 German troops were being ready to defend the place against Hungarian and Polish aggression. Wait, so Hungary and Poland wanted to invade too? Yeah, we, we always think of Nazi Germany as the only aggressive power, but actually... A lot of countries in the region had the same sort of complaints. In the, see, in 1919, the Treaty of Versailles redrew the map of Europe, and a lot of people felt hard done by. Both Hungary and Poland felt they had legitimately lost land that was traditionally theirs when Czechoslovakia was created. Not that any of this is that new anyway. Remember that Europe has been at war for most of its history, and most countries had a claim on most other countries for one reason or another. Ukrainians in Poland and Hungary had also been crossing the border to join the Carpatho-Ukrainian Sitch, but Hitler ignored pro-Carpatho-Ukrainian advisers in Germany and prepared to invade Czechoslovakia on March 15th, 1938, also giving Hungary permission to invade Carpatho-Ukraine, which it did, as we already mentioned. But what could little Carpatho-Ukraine do? Czechoslovakia looked doomed. So, to distance themselves from the rest of Czechoslovakia, they had to ingratiate themselves with the Führer, the Ruthenians responded by creating a single-party state led by PM Volution under the Ukrainian National Union Party in an attempt to win German assistance. Bummer. So Carpathia-Ukraine was really a short-lived Nazi state. Well, this has to be understood in the face of active hostility from Poland and Ukraine and potential hostility from the USSR, who obviously weren't keen on the idea of Ukrainian nationalism. Horribly unreliable and abominable Nazi Germany were their only potential protectors. God, and when Adolf Hitler is your only potential mediator, you know things are bad. Taking care of people's disputes, it's Adolf Hitler. And then Mr. Loverbar here had another kid with a local slut. And then, oh, Adolf, he lied about it to my hey, face. Hey, I'm bringing in money here, and you're just sitting around and your fat ass. Guys, guys, it sounds like you both need some Lebensraum here. Maybe you're right. We do live in a small trailer with seven kids, and I, I guess we could use some more space. And that is why you've got to actively listen to each other, work through your problems, and then invade the Sudetenlands for the glory of the greater German Reich. On March the 14th, Slovakia declared independence and asked for the protection of Germany, who used this as a nice pretext to invade Bohemia and Moravia, i.e. the Czech bit. Germany invaded and faced little resistance from the Czechs. Not surprising, given all the assistance Czechoslovakia knew they couldn't count on from the West. And meanwhile, the Carpatho-Ukrainians were having to fend off the invading Hungarians. The Sitch started arming themselves from Czech barracks. Naturally, the Czech garrisons in the area weren't all that keen on this, and so the two met in battle throughout the day. And with fighting between the Ruthenians and the Czechs, which ironically they probably felt least like fighting, the Carpathian government assembly met for the first time and declared independence. So now we have the state of Carpatho-Ukraine. 
finally, Ed, you know we're like three quarters of the way through this episode. Yeah, this is one of those all-context ones, because the state we're featuring was founded and gone in the blink of an eye. Anyway, as we know, Augustin Volution was named head of state, the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag was chosen, and they even had time to cobble together an anthem. Ukraine has not perished. Like Slovakia before it, Carpatha Ukraine sent a telegram to Germany asking them to take it under their protection, but received no reply. Oh, so they were pro-Nazi Germany, or rather just anti-getting wiped off the map by Hungary. Yeah, mainly the second thing. Frankly, Carpatha Ukraine was looking for any possible protection at this point. Volution also suggested uniting with the Kingdom of Romania, but that didn't happen. So, Carpatha Ukraine was on its own. Just like our island nation when we stood alone against the Nazi menace. Alone, on our own. Uh, yes, on our own. Just us and an international empire that covered a quarter of the planet. Anyway, 3,000 Sitch troops defended the capital of the Red Field. 230 Sitch were killed, with about half that number of Hungarians. At the same time, the Polish invaded Czechoslovakia from the north, but it didn't have that much to do with Carpathia, Ukraine. They were just after a bit of land called Zalutsi that they had lost in 1919. Still, this led the commander of Ruthenian forces to flee to Romania before a shot was fired. The Carpathian government got in on the fleeing action on March the 16th. The only people seemingly not intent on fleeing were the Hungarians, who annexed Carpathia, Ukraine, and it was renamed again as Carpathia. The Ukrainian language was banned, Russin was tolerated, but on the other hand, a new form of the Russin language was also cobbled together and promoted, and that new form of the language uh, is still around today. Anyway, the New York Times reported that... Of all the incredible episode in the breakup of Czechoslovakia, what has happened in Carpatho, Ukraine is the most fantastic. On Tuesday they were fighting the Czechs. On Tuesday night it proclaimed itself an independent state. On Wednesday morning, Czech flags were down, Czechs were in full flight and Ukrainian colors were flying from every window in the capital. By Wednesday night the Hungarian tricolors had replaced the Ukrainian blue and yellow. Carpatho, Ukraine was under three flags in 27 hours. On March 18th, the last holdouts in the mountains were defeated. Sitch members who had crossed from Poland to Carpatho, Ukraine, were then handed back to the Poles and many were executed. 27,000 Carpathia Ukrainians were executed without trial and the weeks after, tens of thousands fled to the USSR, probably not the best refuge since many ended up in the Gulag. And it didn't get much better for the occupants of Carpathia Ukraines once the Nazis finally got involved. Most notably, Carpathia Ukrainian Jews predictably met a grim fate in the death camps after Germany invaded Hungary in 1944. Volution initially fared a little better than his people. He at first relocated to Prague, where he became a professor of the Free Ukrainian University. But when the Soviets took Prague in 1945, they arrested him and charged him of accusations of Ukrainian nationalism. I mean, as far as Soviet show trials go, they got pretty good evidence. Anyway, and very sadly, he died in 1945. The official cause of death was heart failure. 
Wow, who would have thought that captivity and torture from weeks on end in a Soviet prison would be bad for your heart? Following World War II, Subcarpathia was officially annexed by the Soviet Union and became part of Ukraine under the name of the Zakarpatia Oblast. Subsequently, the Russian identity was essentially outlawed. Russians were rebadged again as Ukrainian and forced to learn the Ukrainian language. Even Russians in the USA were herded one way or the other by cultural and religious institutions. They became labelled Russian by the Russian Orthodox Church or Ukrainian uh, by the Ukrainian Orthodox Church or Greek by the Catholic Church or Polish by the Roman Catholic Church. Wherever you care to look, the Carpatho-Ukrainians or Ruthenians or Russians were essentially forgotten. It's only recently that the distinctly Russian identity is recognised, well in the West at least. In the East the question is more difficult. In 2002, Augustin Volushin was made a hero of Ukraine and given the order of state posthumously, but not Carpatho-Ukraine, just Ukraine. Circling back to what's going on now, the Ruthenian identity was used to try to destabilise Ukraine by the other incredibly unreliable autocrat, Russia's Vladimir Putin. Just as Hitler had encouraged local nationalities to break up Czechoslovakia, Putin tried the same thing with Ukraine. But then Subcarpathian Rus emerged again in 2015 and announced its independence. Um, Ed, I feel like I would have remembered that. 2015. Jeremy Clarkson punches the guy in the fracas, the word we've never used before and since, right? VW emissions scandal. New country in Eastern Europe. Well, it did in the Russian media anyway. Reports in 2015 that a Ruthenian Congress had formed and demanded independence turned out to have been totally cooked up by Russian news agency TASS, who quoted Petro Getsko, apparently the brand new Prime Minister of brand new Subcarpathian Rus. This surprised many Ruthenians who said they hadn't seen him for years and understood that he lived in Russia nowadays. Maybe not a coincidence. In fact, kind of like with their experience back in the old Czechoslovakian days, Ruthenian organisations had only asked to be recognised as an ethnic group in the Ukraine, wanted a push towards democracy, which is what happened anyway, and wanted Ukraine to join the EU. Now, if I had said all this in 2015, I would have been accused of smearing Vladimir Putin. But since he actually went on to invade Ukraine, I'm willing to not give him the benefit of the doubt. What's the conclusion to all this? So whether the fight for a free Carpathian Ukraine was about a free Ukrainian republic as a whole, a free Ruthenia specifically, or just not getting wiped off the map, it was still a significant one. And in fighting Hungarian aggression, it represented the first fight back against the Axis powers in Europe. Yes, Carpatho-Ukraine didn't last long, and only declared its independence basically so it could try and protect itself, i.e. being able to reach out to Germany or Romania, or anyone who would pick up the phone as Hungary were battering down the walls. But this isn't another Republic of West Florida. This wasn't some kind of opportunism. There are a people called Ruthenians. And they've lived in that area for a thousand years. They have a recognisable culture and tradition and dialect. This is real country's stuff. 
And since then, the Ruthenians and their little parcel of land has been passed around from kingdoms to empires to countries and back again. We can only hope that Ruthenians, wherever they are, get the recognition they deserve within Ukraine. Of course, there's the small matter of Russian aggression to deal with first. Yeah, there's always some bastard. Yeah, there always is. But that said, Putin's invasion has had an interesting side effect. The reinforcement of a stronger Ukrainian national identity. Almost like Czechoslovakia, Ukraine isn't just one people. There are Polish parts, there are Hungarian parts, there are Romanian parts, there is a Ruthenian part, all behind a pretty heroic Jewish native Russian-speaking president. Slava Ukraini! tuning in listeners to this very relevant topic of the Carpathian Ukraine. Don't forget to stay in touch with everything we do at ctdeapod on Twitter, on Facebook and our website ctdeapod.com Join us next time when we'll be delving even more into the context of this fascinating place and time. So see you next time on Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist Real.